Welcome, I'm Dr. Robert Groves, your host for the Groves Connection podcast. The Groves Connection brings you intimate conversations with pundits, providers, patients, leaders, and laypeople, all to help us understand a contradiction. How can our healthcare system be both magnificent and yet so deeply flawed? We're going inside healthcare to talk candidly with those who know. What they have to say may delight, surprise, frustrate, or at times even anger you. But I invite you to get curious and listen to the truth about healthcare and those who want to fix it. Maybe the answers have been there all along. We just need to make the connection. My guest today on The Groves Connection is Vasant Kumar. Vasant has been a friend and colleague for nearly a decade, and so I'm particularly delighted to bring this conversation to you. Vasant began his career as Vice President of Strategy and Chief Information Officer at an international pharmaceutical company. He then turned his talents to health policy and reform in developing economies as a financial economist at the World Bank. It was his love of healthcare and mathematics, as well as his respect for science, that led him to found his first company, Script Logics. He founded this in the United States over a decade ago. His strategy and market research company engaged with the Harvard Business School, Big Pharma, major healthcare delivery organizations, and thought leaders, and drew on Vassant's global experience and connections to conduct a wide range of strategy and research projects designed to help shape business innovation in healthcare. In the process, ScriptLogix developed substantial data assets regarding patient and physician preferences, behaviors, and motivations, as well as attitudes. These assets have been operationalized in his new company, CareCentra, which Vasant founded with two of his close colleagues, bringing their additional expertise to the company. CareCentra has developed a sophisticated approach to positively influencing health and healthcare delivery that's based on the Nobel Prize winning insights of nudge theory, AI-enabled behavioral psychology, reinforcement learning, and intervention based on real-time patient responses. His platform has now been validated by two randomized clinical trials with Intermountain Healthcare in Utah. With two decades of experience at senior levels of business management in pharmaceuticals, international finance, information technology, and now the application of behavioral science to healthcare engagement, you can understand my eagerness to publish this episode. Though it is rather long, I encourage you to listen as you can and listen some more. What you'll hear is the future of healthcare unfolding in the mind of Asant Kumar. Are you ready to connect? Kumar, welcome to the Groves Connection. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm delighted. Delighted to see you too, Robert. Now, uh, Vasant, we've known each other for, what, five years? More? More, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Ten years now. 
And uh, I remember that uh, we met as a result of a referral from a, a mutual friend, uh, Rishi Sika. And Rishi said, you got to meet this guy. He's doing some cool stuff. And, and I have to admit, you're doing some cool stuff. And it, it's, it's what I consider to be the next iteration that's necessary in healthcare. Uh, there are a lot of folks that are doing analytics. We can perhaps predict someone's going to get into trouble. But the next question becomes, okay, how do we influence that person to behave more in a way that's healthy for them? What do we do to get them to to bend the curve towards health, for lack of a better term? And that's that's what you that you know that's what your company does. And I think it is so cool. But before we get there, I want to go back a little bit and. Just get some context on you as a human being. Where where were you born? Where did you grow up? Sure. Uh, it was all in India, Robert. I was, uh, my early days were all in India. In fact, the first 40 years of my life, nearly 40 years, was in India. I grew up in southern part of India in Chennai, went to school in Chennai. There is something to say about the South Indian phenotype, if you will. The, mm-hmm. They are more inclined to quantitative sciences and quantitative ways of thinking. I think it's generally true of people in the subcontinent. You see more of them who lean towards engineering, accounting. Uh, It's more deductive logic. So if you think about the other side of it, it is uh, more inductive or uh, synthetic thinking. That's not what we excel in. Looking at various other pieces and putting together synthesizing is not the general norm. It's more about deductive logic. And that's an interesting way of thinking about, I do believe that different parts of the world have, you know, different emphases. Different talents or, or predispositions. Predispositions, yeah. I so, believe so, so. So was that, uh, were you immersed in that in your family? Is that something right. that Yes, was- my, my father. And again, the other thing that you find in that part of the world in South Asia, East Asia is maybe disproportionate emphasis on education, books, and book-based mm, learning yeah, yeah. as opposed to sort of got experiential learning and, you know, sports or that's not up there. It's more about why are you wasting time? Why are you not doing your math? <laughs> why are you not, you know, yeah, that's, yeah. that's the, and I grew up in a household which was very similar. My father emphasized mathematics over everything else for some reason. Was your father an engineer? No, he was not. He actually, for some reason, introduced me to, I would say now, looking back, the joys of mathematics, even when I was three, four years old. And there was a lot that uh, he, at that time, tried to sort of teach me and cram, perhaps, in a way (laughs) that, uh, you know, I was doing a lot of things without understanding why. Yeah, uh, yeah, And that's not unusual in those families. And so he would say, you know, get your principles here and later on you will understand how it comes together. And then I, I remember another, an uncle in our family, his, it was his uncle actually, my father's uncle who said, I think you're taking it away too far because the kid is only seven or eight and you're teaching him all <laughs> principles of algebra. They were driving you too hard. Yes. Huh? Yeah. And so algebra may not be the best sort of way to go about things because I was, while I did some of it more to impress my father, I guess, yeah, yeah, than to understand really. And he backed off a little bit, but that whole idea of launching into a quantitative way of thinking yeah, started yeah. very early. I went to college with an undergrad degree was in mathematics. So um, the equivalent of like a bachelor's in yes, mathematics? Yes, that's a bachelor's uh-huh. in mathematics. Okay. And after that, I went into economics where it was more, that segue went through finance and accounting. 
Gotcha. Really. Okay. In, what, what, in, what drew you into economics? Why? Why that? Why? It was just in in again in India. You either went towards engineering, right, or you went to medicine. Yeah. That's these yep. are the two dominant. And we see that in this yes. country. Yeah. You know, the, the, those right. who have migrated here very often. That's exactly uh, what they're it, doing. Right. Yeah. And having chosen to go with mathematics, engineering was a possibility at that time. It was the early era of business education and business, yeah. you know, as a as a formal degree. That was the early early days. I was influenced by some of thinking in the family to say maybe what you need to do is equip yourself with a degree in finance and economics, and then later on, that's more in some sense something that you can do something with without that level of competitive intensity. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. that was at least the logic. Okay. I, okay. Looking back, I don't think that holds water. But that's really what pushed me into that area. So, so let me ask you a question. I mean, in the U.S., very often kids are invited to find what do you love? You know, what is it that you love and that you, you lean towards anyway? There's not that sense that I'm getting from you. It didn't matter, really, what you loved because you need to learn your math. That's so, <laughs> so true. That yeah. is very true, Robert. You put your finger right on it. In fact, I was talking about it with my wife yesterday. Why is it so different from that part of the world? You know, the, the parental... You can call it intervention or guidance or yes. paternalism yeah. is heavy handed yeah. in saying, if you're not doing this, then something is wrong. So <laughs> kids are pushed to one line or the other. And that's simply the way it was 50 years ago. And I don't think much has changed now. Yeah. It's still, yeah. You know, those that, those cultural norms die slowly, if yes, at all. Yes, they really do. All, yes. So do you feel like you missed out on anything that you might have done? Done or? differently? No, not at all, Robert. Because in some sense, I think they had it right in sensing what I was good at. I think okay. I was guided yeah, in, yeah. in the right direction. It just happened. It was coincidental and fortuitous. Yeah. I don't think... Uh, There's a reliance on wisdom here, right? I mean, your parents ought to be wise about who you are and what... And I'm thinking about this in the context, okay, it's almost like an arranged marriage and that this is an arranged career. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. yeah. In some sense, you're yeah. right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. You know, what the emphasis, interestingly, is what you do in school and your academic fashioning. Right. And when once that's done, then they don't really they back off and say after then, that, you know, whatever job you get. And that's that's your your story. But let me equip you. My father used to say, you know, even when we were very young, I'm not going to leave behind for you a big estate. Yes. Uh -huh. Right. But I do. I will stand by you and fund any education you think is important for you to equip yourself. And simply don't worry. You know, you want to go and get a doctorate. It is for me to, to find that. that again is different, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not like it is here now where you could take a, a an education loan or and you right, pay it off right. yourself. And those things did not exist. Yeah. It was always yeah. the family that was paying for your education. And, and with him, he didn't have a problem saying that to all, you know, so, we were three brothers. Yeah, yeah. So fundamentally, he's saying, I'm going to prepare you to be a success in life. Yes. Once I prepare you, then go do. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. That you went to college for a, and got a college degree was not even a, an option. What, what, what was your mom's role in all this? How do you remember that uh, her, relationship? Very, her influence was more about stay within the straight and narrow. Yes. <laughs> Keep there, it between that, the that lines. Was, yes, song. always. Yeah, always. Yeah. That was her role. These sort of academic pressures would come from her directly, but she also knew that because she was not so heavy handed. 
she would go and tell dad, you need to make sure that these kids, yes. you know, that yes. sort of thing. Yeah. So they played the influence game in yeah. ways that was, you know, it turned out to be advantages. Yeah. Looking yeah. back, it was all right. Yeah. So, all right. so now we're, uh, you've gotten a, a, essentially the equivalent of a bachelor's in mathematics. You've gone on, where did you study you know, uh, economics? Master's, it, the equivalent of a master's with uh -huh. finance and economics. Gotcha. Okay. In, in, uh, in India. India. Yeah. And then equipped with that, because that was pretty much to, to prove my father's point, I guess, when I did that, I that gave me a ticket into Pete Marwick, okay. the mm -hmm. Pete Marwick Consulting Company, gotcha. uh, KPMG. Mm -hmm. At that time, Pete Marwick did not have a direct presence in India. They had um, a tie-up with a, a firm called Ferguson's. And Ferguson's was the national, you can think of them as the, the largest consulting gotcha. company okay. in the country. They were also very influential. And one of the things they required was certain academic credentials before you even got it. Uh, okay. uh, you know, got in. And that was a, a consulting job. Sort of that was my launch. Gotcha. And it was a high paying job. And yeah, yeah. so my parents probably felt vindicated at the time. And it was a start. <laughs> we got it done. Right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. again, in India, maybe here's what's different. You continue to live with your family, with your parents, you know, family, my brothers, we all were in the same place growing up together and growing up until, you know, I was 30. When I got married, yeah. I left home. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Uh, again, something different Yeah. Uh, here. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, there, there are some uh, parents that I've heard say uh, that if you're uh, over the age of 18 and you're not going to college, you're paying rent. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Know, that's that's but right. of course, going, not going to college was not an option for you. <laughs> so so you're in the consult. What kind of consulting were you doing primarily? It was generally management consulting. General okay. management consulting okay. is yeah. what it was called. And, and for and Indian companies? Strategy. Yes, yeah. for Indian yeah. companies. Yeah. One of the clients for this consulting company was the World Bank. World Bank was doing work in India. Right. And they would take uh, local consulting firms to work with them. And I got into financial modeling, econometric mm -hmm. modeling and so forth. And that's the kind of work I was doing for the bank. And they liked what they saw. They made me an offer and said, come work for us, come work yeah. for the World Bank. Mm -hmm. You know, when I moved to the World Bank, it was in financial economics. And okay economic policy. Then it was about financial sort of modeling for large lending and so forth. At that time, it was, you know, sort of lending to states right, at the sovereign right, level, yeah. typically loans that range from 150 to $300 million. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, Big all of the, finance. yes. yes. Uh -huh. And that was the exposure at the bank, which said, here, here's how to think Huge about Huge data sets, uh, I'm yes, sure, too. Yes, that's yeah, right, yes. Yeah. And also because it was early days, again, in uh, computing infrastructure, in, even at the bank, right. they were happy to let someone run with it if you had a flair for, for it, right? So gotcha. I did not have a degree in, in computing or information sciences, but they were happy to give me you know, a role that included uh, so you had some freedom to explore that yes. ability, if That's you will. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so that was self-taught yes. for the most part? At, at yeah. that time, it was. Yeah. Uh, so I was coming more from understanding the basics of computing, yeah. but using more mathematical modeling to say, how, how does this work? The bank was an interesting journey. I met some amazing people. Yeah, um, yeah I bet. Uh, global, at the global level, people uh, like Michael Porter, 
yes. Harvard, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, really giants in the field. And because it was the World Bank, they would take my calls, right? And 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 just uh, to be fair, you are the guy that introduced me to Reggie Herzlinger. Herzlinger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Reggie, though, I met, you know, subsequently. But this was interesting because um, at the time when I was at the bank, my whole intent was to do a PhD in economics. Gotcha. Right? That was okay. my, and the bank was furthering that because they gave me some of the sets of um, okay. skills that I then met um, Jeffrey Sachs. Okay. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, Jeffrey Sachs was a rising star. He was on the cover of Time magazine. He was, uh, you know, really up there. He had visited India at that time in New mm-hmm. Delhi. This was in New Delhi. The bank was in New Delhi. Was that their primary headquarters in right. India? In was India, in New Delhi. Was yeah. in New Delhi. So, um, and were you living in New Delhi then? Yes, Is that, okay. I, I moved to New Delhi. Uh, okay. So that's the north. So I heard that Jeffrey Sachs was in town. That was because, uh, Robert, when I was at the bank, I was also going to school to get a master's in business. Gotcha. Okay. So while doing this MBA, my professor in economics at the Delhi University was actually a good friend. He said, look, you are really not doing what you ought to be doing. You're wasting your time not doing a PhD in economics. Gotcha. Okay. So you, you need to really push this beyond a master's. You've done what you've done and the World Bank is giving you a good base. Yeah. But you need to really build on it and you should get a PhD. He, he was pushing me towards the Kennedy School. Okay. Saying, yeah. That's where you yeah. really need to go. And when Jeffrey Sachs visited New Delhi, he had said, you know, you should talk to Jeff Sachs. And it just happened that due to a, a sequence of events, I got lucky. And uh, he said, yeah, come on over. And I had a discussion with him. What he said was interesting. He said, look, you've been out of academia for nearly seven years now. Yeah. You've been with the bank, you've gone into consulting and now with the World Bank. So getting into a PhD in in the Kennedy School, not only is it going to be difficult, I would recommend against it because what that school does is look for future professors. Yes. Okay. okay. So if you really want to do something along the lines that you are doing, you're probably better off at the bank. Gotcha. Right? Interesting. And that yeah. was his advice. But he said, if you know you still think you want to go get a PhD, do that in business and go to the business school. So I can talk to Michael Porter, if you like. Nice. So I, I, I got interest. It piqued my interest, but I still, finally, I a- ended up not doing a PhD either in business or in <laughs> economics. And that's what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I met somebody from the pharmaceutical industry who was building India's uh, first generics company at that time. Okay. It was a... a and, and what year is this about? It, this Round was about? in the uh, mid-90s. Okay, okay. Right? Very early on. Yes, is. very early on. Yeah. So what happened with the bank was it also gave me the opportunity to work with some of the sort of um, high priests of economic development within India. Right. right? So okay. it gave me yeah. access to some of the very best and how they thought about planned economies and so right, forth. Right. Having said that, my intent was to get into the micro aspects of it. How do I get back into microeconomics and do something? Yeah. Because the bank, you're, you're, it's all these $300 billion dollar loans. Yeah, yeah. What are you doing with that? Yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know what impact I had. Right. Okay. Okay. So that propelled me towards back into industry in a way that it made sense. And healthcare, particularly pharma at that time, they said, you know, the way you want to get in is into strategy and microeconomics because you have macro background. You can get into microeconomics and strategy uh, and you have an understanding of, of healthcare at the broader landscape. Look for a company that does its thinking in India. 
either you have the opportunity of going out of the country right. or you look for a company that has the large ambition that is doing this out of India. So this CEO who I met, he later on became a dear friend. He had big ambition for the company they were building. It was just a company that was about $200 million in size. It was a small generics company at that time by today's right, standards. Right. I was quite fascinated with the individual who was running it. And yeah. I said, I need to work with this guy. And that, that was really what drove me from broad policy to microeconomics. That was your, and that was your first foray into healthcare through, right. through into, pharma. And how long were you with that? I was there for five years, Robert. What was interesting was the company grew from 200 million to a billion dollars in just five years time. And that period was intense growth. It gave me an opportunity to work globally because they were buying companies right, uh, right. all over, including in the US. And Princeton was one of the companies that they bought. And that brought me to Princeton. I was familiar with. And, and, and so did that prompt your move? To, when did you move to the States? After that. that, after that okay. Right after that, it took me right through to 2000. I was with this pharma company in New Delhi, but working globally. Gotcha. And then... So you spent time here then? Yes. Yeah, time. I was yeah. familiar with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In 2001, I decided that I, I need to do this on my own. I need to work on the confluence of healthcare and data and, you know, some yeah. of the modeling aspects of it. I, I was fascinated with that area, the confluence of all of these things, because I think the interdisciplinary areas are, are the more interesting things, right? Yes. That's where... There's well, that's where the, that's where uh, innovation happens. That's I mean, right. I, you know, the GE and and their labs proved that a long time ago. I that's think. right. It, yes, you know, that's it's at the intersection of disciplines where you get the amazing uh, ideas that have reshaped the world right. essentially. Yeah. Right, and yeah. that was my drive too. While at the pharma company, a company with big ambition, right? Right. You're mm -hmm. you're thinking huge, and you're you're a billion dollar company. Pharma is so massive, but yet they had a glint in the eye yeah, that they yeah. thought that they could uh, yeah, do interesting yeah. things. It attracted the attention of Harvard Business School. There was Pankaj Gimawat, who was a professor at Harvard, and said, I want to study this company and I want to write a case on the company. So I worked with him oh, on that. Yeah. So that gave me some insights into how all the of case these methodology are at Harvard. Methods, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And then I met another extremely interesting you know, personality from the London Business School, Shumantra Goshal. Shumantra was a, a dear friend of mine later, yes. but he was known as the, the Euro guru. Again, he was, you know, the uh, business school poster boy. Yeah, yeah. Because he had a way of thinking that was dramatically different from anything else at that time. So his, his whole idea was a, a theory in science can be tested, replicated, and if it makes sense, expanded. Otherwise, you could you could expunge it. Whereas a theory of management is something that influences if there are enough number of leaders who believe in that, they will make it happen. And huh. that's a dangerous thing. He says, yeah. because you cannot acid test these things, right? You could do both good and bad in terms of influence. A bad theory that gathers currency, so-called theory, yeah. which cannot be tested like in a lab. Right. If enough number of CEOs believe, then it will happen, and sometimes you crash and burn. And you see there is enough evidence yeah, of that happening yeah. in, in the field of business. So he would say constantly, business is not a science, so let's not treat it like a science. Interesting. Right. Now, now, let me ask you a question. As you were speaking about that, I was thinking about studies that were done in healthcare. Uh, you know, EICU is one of them. That's the one I know best, you know, the, the electronic ICU, mm -hmm. as opposed to testing drug A versus placebo or versus drug B 
which is very straightforward, and you can you can actually use science mm-hmm. uh, to determine the efficacy of, of that drug. With the EICU, there is so much sociocultural influence that if somebody says EICU doesn't work, you have to start asking some questions like, okay, in what context? Who was behind the camera? Did they have the authority uh, that they needed to to drive change? Under what circumstances would you use them? Did the physicians allow them to write orders? Is this a similar kind of thing that you're think that he was thinking about in, in terms of business? It's right. there's so much social cultural context that it's not as simple as let's see if this works. It's let's see how this works. And if you get a bad theory in your head, you can probably make it work, but it's inefficient or it takes you in the wrong direction. Can you think of an example of something like right. that? Right. You, you know, you, you take junk bonds, for example. Ah. Right? <laughs> you know, I, yes, I don't yes, need yes. I say more. Yeah. Right. Uh, if there is a charismatic sort of leader that starts and sort of profits the idea yeah, and, and then there are enough number of people around that say, yeah, this might work and then try it, then it becomes real. Yeah. People get hurt in the process. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Sometimes it works and for the positive good, but sometimes uh, it goes negative. Now, in science, you can say there is Newtonian mechanics dominated for, you know, yeah. for 300 years. Then Einstein came along and then, you know, it, that's it. You have paradigms that are so long in their run. In business, it's all, uh, everything is relatively young and new. Yeah. And, you know, somebody who is more charismatic, says this is how it should be done. Yeah, yeah, and then interesting. Until we crash and burn and then try something else. So uh, did he have any recommendations uh, about how to avoid adopting or even thinking of and, and getting sucked into an idea that is not good long-term? Is there, right. is there any he, test he was, for the models? No, he was always about, you know, don't theorize too much in business. This is not science. So y- you'll have to be extremely sort of mindful that you could be really wrong in a different circumstance, right? Gotcha. In, in, okay. When the context changes, so so we're not advocating more for an experiential process to and and, and culturally alive process, right? Okay. okay. So, uh, for example, he would say, you know, scale economies. So, if you think about, you know, companies that profited from scale, they have a history. Think of post-war America, post-World War II. Everything was happening here. So scale made sense. So you centralize, you know, so there's a central command and then, you know, Taylorian principles of business. I have a business process and then right down it can go. Anybody on a wrench can do it and it's a, a, that's the way it works. You repeat the process. Whereas in industry that looked at scope, an example he used to use was fiat. European companies in general, they decentralize, right? So fiat in India, for example, nobody would even know it was the Italian company at, the, at those times because yeah, they yeah. just absorbed the local culture so much. So it was not command and control. It was about absorbing the culture of the land that they were working in. Got it. Right? Okay. It's a very different mindset. Yeah. So his whole work was about, is there a way that you can balance both scope and scale? Gotcha. Are there okay. ways that you can go in, absorb the culture of the land and still produce in a way that you know, you have efficiencies of scale. You know, it's interesting. That's a similar notion to uh, the notion that healthcare is hyper-local. And I just had a discussion with uh, Sanjula Jane. She's working with a company called Trilliant now that is using consumer data and, you know, huge data sets to 
predict both demand for specific services at a very local level and consumer behavior using psychographic uh, in addition to demographics, et cetera. And the notion is very much the same. It's like what worked at Intermountain won't necessarily work in Phoenix. You have to look at what the context is and it might work, but you might have to tweak it a little bit. You know, you might have to have some nuances that weren't present in that prior iteration of whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. Very true, very true. And one size doesn't fit all, right? Yes. So mm-hmm. I was influenced by some of that kind of thinking. And Shumantra was a Renaissance man in many ways because mm-hmm. he would, we were at that time very much involved in the Indian contemporary art scene. Oh, so okay. We had a lot of yeah. uh, friends amongst artists and yeah. artists' yeah, 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 friends. Yeah. And so, you know, my wife was um, very much involved in it. She she wrote about it. She, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, was a... I would not, I hesitate to say a collector, but we would collect pieces that we liked, that yes, kind of thing. Uh-huh. So Shumantra would say, look, I want to put together my own collection. So here's what we do. He would say, you help build my collection and I will help your husband build his business. Because I used to talk to him about, this yeah. is what I really want to do. Yeah, uh, Shumantra, yeah. I want to uh, set up something on my own. And I'm thinking of going to the US. He, he advised me at that time. He said, if you're going to a, a different market, don't do something that is different from what you're doing here. Hmm. Or if you want to go do something different, do it here. Because if you put new, new on both ah, sides, interesting. if you go to a new market and try and do something new, odds against you would be high. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, the, the notion that uh, hold on to something familiar so you have a leg to stand on, a right. foundation right. to build out something new from. One or the other, either uh, the market or the idea has to be something that you can uh, rely on. I right. Guess. That's interesting. That's uh, It makes sense. Intuitively, yeah. it makes sense. Intuitively. Yeah. At that time, it was, you know, it was like these ideas were like a bee in a in the bonnet, right? This was, I'm talking of 2001. I had this notion that that was the early advent of the, it used to be called the tablet, right? Microsoft had oh, yes. uh-huh. the tablet uh-huh, yeah. and was just, they were working on that. And and also because of the pharma company that I was working in at Ranbaxi, but as a CIO and head of strategy in a company which was, you know, sort of visible to many people yeah, as an yeah. ambitious company, when they came to India, they had to talk Inter- to people like me, with, yeah. mm-hmm. right? And so, I had access to Bill Gates, and it was a... Bill Gates, who's that? (laughs) (laughs) Right, I know, I know, right? So uh, he said to me that, you know, some of these ideas that you're talking about, and if you are going to build, if I were not in software, I would be in healthcare. Interesting. It is uh, an observation. And he said, I like what you're thinking about, and some of the things you could do if you are eventually in the US and you want to try these ideas, because I was talking of a technology-based way of accessing physicians, beginning to map physician attention, really. Right, right, I was right. talking of the psychography of attention. Gotcha, okay. Right? Uh-huh. The way you pay attention to maybe a pharma detail or a, a new treatment pathway matters so much. And going back two decades ago, what I could sort of articulate at the time was, you know, is this front of mind attention that you're paying me or is it back of mind attention? Right. Uh, Is it voluntary attention or is it captive attention? And depending on the type of attention, does that then move the needle in the way you practice that particular care pathway? How do I convince you, for example, that for lower back pain, don't go with imaging? Right. For example, right. I might send you papers. I might talk to you about uh, this in in a convincing kind of way, or you might have 
um, you know, medical liaison people coming in and sort of telling you this is one way to go or the other way to go. Whatever be the process, your propensity to absorb and act on what I'm telling you yes. might differ based on your kind of attention that you pay. I'm seeing shades of Care Centra here already uh, a couple that, of decades ago, and we'll get into that. I mean, I, that's really, uh, I want to get into the meat of that here, but I love that you were already hatching those ideas uh, back then, and, and gosh, how cool a life to come into contact with some of these really giants in their field at a time when it was just opening up. That That's a, a great place to be. Right. So how did that transition happen from pharma to to actually the first move to the U.S.? Was that after you started forming a company? It, it was more the access to these people, Robert, I must clarify, was it was like the one-eyed man and the king of the blind, they say. When you come to <laughs> Delhi, there aren't very many uh, CIO strategy professionals who can go play golf with you or all of these giants come to a smaller space. Yeah, They still have to interact. And it gave me insights into how they th thought. One of the things that Gates offered me at that time was he said, there's a team in Redmond that helped with the tablet yes, and how mm -hmm. they had uh, built it and so forth. I will sort of connect you there. You can talk to them because some of the ideas that you're talking about might resonate with a team like that. Hmm. I said, wow, maybe there's something there. Yeah. And in some sense, while at the peak of a career in pharma, I said, I'm, I'm going to do this. Right? I'm, I'm, and my brother was already here several years. He was, uh, and I was familiar with the- uh, It's kind of a brave move though. You were very high up in the organization. You had a very reliable, high paying job. You're familiar with where you are. You're global already, so you can get exposed to anything. What was it that prompted you to take that move? That's a pretty courageous step. I know, Robert. I mean, if I think about it logically, I wouldn't do it, <laughs> right? I, I'll be honest with you. My wife still asks me that question. <laughs> what prompted you? What were you thinking? Yeah. What were you thinking? But, uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, always looking back, you, you say, gosh, I would not have had that kind of, I don't know, testicular fortitude to say, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Right? It yeah. was just whim, honestly. Yeah. Uh, no, I Anything else that. will yeah. not justify it. And when I, I went and when I said to the CEO that I was, uh, the pharma company, I was moving along. He said, that may not be a smart thing to do. But he was also very, a wonderful person. He, one of the things that also prompted my exit was that he was dying of esophageal cancer. He was mm. only early 50s. Wow. But it was one of those things where he was here in Sloan Kettering and going back and forth. And it was a, a tough time for him. Yeah. So what he said to me was, look, I will expand the playground for you if that's what you want. So let's go build that together, the thing that you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I would like to be part of it. But he knew also that he was sinking, right? Yes, yes. So then he called his next in line, who's another dear friend of mine, Devinder Brar. He called this Devinder and said, look, this guy is embarking upon something that is bright as he is. I don't know if he can pull off something like yeah. that. <laughs> so let's make sure that he's got a, you know, a, the right kind of options and so forth from the company. Right. So that when he decides to pull the plug, he will have something to fall back on because right, right now he's untethered. Again, I, I was surprised at the options I was awarded that year in the company and Dr. Singh, the CEO, had just passed away. After mm. he died, I had this little chat with the next, next person who was taking over and I said to him, I'm moving along. He, was, he said, okay, if that's what you have to do, you've got to do it. 
and that's what prompted me to come here. This was all in August of 2001, I got to Princeton and settled here. Then 9-11 happened. Wow. I cut all strings there. Did you in, uh, uh, early on have, or even now, do you have any regrets about that decision? No, not at all. Yeah, not at yeah, all, Robert. Yeah. Uh, if I were not pushed that way, I would not have done it. Yeah, uh, it was yeah. just something. To a large extent, it was. Uh, my wife said, "You know, if that's what turns you on, that's what you should do." It's that's amazing because yeah. she never questioned my. That Are you really is prepared? truly yes. amazing that she was able to. She said, "If that makes yeah. you happy, that's wow. what we do." Wow. I could not have. I, Thank and, you, Yvette. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you, Yvette, in no small measure. And then it was a sort of test by fire, right? You you come here and with all these grand ideas, I was going back and forth from Redmond and, you know, with this great team and talking of prototypes and so forth. After 9-11 happened, yeah. they said, Everything all bets are off. Yeah. Who are you guys? You know, you're a group of Indian guys who are trying to set up a company. We don't have time for you now. Yeah, we don't have money for you now, yes, too, as yes. I'm sure resources. Yeah. Yes, and that's what yeah. happened. So I had to take the company that I just about set up and make it a consulting company. Gotcha. Right? Okay. So, uh, and then began at the beginning. So we shelved this idea of building technology and so forth and said it was very humbling. Sort of let me get into consulting and do something that Shumantra had said, do something that you already know. Right. Uh, Willy-nilly, I got pushed into that met Reggie at that time as I was establishing consulting. And what was very interesting about that meeting, Robert, again, was that one of the calls I had made was to Bain & Company here in New York. Okay. Uh -huh. And Bain said, we've got a consulting practice and if you guys are going to do work in market research, for example, because we had said we would do a few things. We would do models, build uh, right. models mm -hmm. uh, in healthcare broadly. Mm -hmm. We'd do market research and we would do some strategy work where you know, the clients thought that we, we could. Uh, but Bain was interested in some of that market research capabilities. And they said, at that time, my, my colleague in the company and spoken to somebody in, in New York and the partner said, okay, well, it's interesting. I'll come back to you if I find anything that we can partner on. Right. And it just happened that they were doing something at the business school. They, they were doing some pro bono consulting for the business school. They said, look, uh, now they said to Harvard, you should now do this in a paid consulting form. You should do some uh, market research and so forth. Yeah. And here are seven firms that we think you might want to choose from. You know, various companies that you you could look at and say, yeah, I, I know those names. Yeah, yeah. And the last was uh, ScriptLogix, the company that I had set up. Yes, I, yeah, yeah, I remember that name. Yes, 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 yes. And ScriptLogix, they said, we don't know this company, but they simply added it for, I don't know, it was just fortuitous. And... Howard methodically went through the whole thing. And we were the eighth in the list, I remember. And they called, we spoke, and we won that through. And they said, we know a lot about healthcare and healthcare policy. But the only way we'd be able to influence it is if we got to physician leaders like yourself. Right, right. right. What we do not know is, will they come in and take courses at Harvard? How much time would they spend? Will these leaders come and go into a case study method of this nature and spend time here, understand, absorb, right. and go? And then will they go back and send their next line back right, into right. Uh, the school? So can we, our course that we are trying to develop here, you know, can you go and find out what 
their interest would be in something. So you're like that. you're trying to predict behavior at this time, yeah. uh, right? Yeah. And it was market research, right? That was right. the rubric of market research. And so one of my interviewees at that time for this project was Parish. Oh, okay. Uh, here he, he, he was uh, in New York. With and, his, and just to clarify for the listeners, uh, Parish is uh, a, a surgeon at Langone, NYU. Yes, he's uh, a vice chair of surgery at NYU. Yeah, he heads surgery. He was extremely impressive, needless to mention. And I, I told him later on, I called him back and said, Parish, I'm doing this script logics. You know, I think we can do something together. And that's right. when he okay. jumped in with yeah. me. The thing was, we went back to Harvard and said, physicians would love to learn, but they hate to be taught. That was, <laughs> that was our single, great line. single that line That is so slide. true. That is so true. So they said, tell me more. We managed to get their attention. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it was interesting. That led to the shaping of the course that they is still being taught uh, yeah, at yeah. the business school for healthcare leaders. And uh, then that led me to Reggie. Yes. And uh-huh. Reggie had a, a different sort of Take. She said, I'm, I'm going to look at innovation in healthcare yes. and how, how this progresses. So I will give you access to 65 leaders in healthcare, the most innovative leaders across the globe. And gosh, she was on the board of many of those companies. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so she said, can you, from ScriptLogics, sort of talk to them? And what I'm interested in is, A, how they got here and what keeps them up at night? You know, what do they think about when they think of discontinuities in care, in healthcare? How are they preparing for it? Yes. Right? Uh-huh. If, if there are these shifts and discontinuities. Lastly, what? how are they addressing talent? How do the Harvards and Stanfords and Yales, how are they helping? Yeah, yeah. And this was fascinating because it was a year-long project that culminated in a convention, a major convention that Reggie was chairing. She was amazing. She was um in every way, uh, extremely uh, sort of encouraging and every step. Yeah. Uh, she was doing the handholding that was required. And we did some of these interviews together. In fact, uh, in script logic, some of my colleagues were saying, how much are we paying Harvard to do this? Because this is an opportunity <laughs> of a lifetime. I, I could sit down with the CEO of Mass General, the CEO of Pfizer, the CEO of um, Novartis. Some of them are friends of mine now, right? Because of this kind of conversation yeah, I had. Yeah, yeah. I, had a whale of a time, Robert, doing something like what you're doing now, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. and getting uh, paid for I, it. I, I understand that. I mean, this is uh, this is one of my great loves is having these kinds of conversations with right. with smart people, and uh, I learn so much. I say this is a selfish pursuit because it truly is. Uh, yeah. it, it, I think I benefit more than anybody else from these conversations. But I thought, why not record them and uh, and let others listen in uh, to to what it's like. So script logics then morphed a couple of times. Uh, I, I think when we first met, uh, CareCentra didn't exist as a name. It was uh, it was all under that right script logics. It was all uh, script logics because yeah. the work at Harvard then prompted us to spin off the platform. Because what we came back again to in Reggie's study was speaking to all these leaders globally. This was some of them were in South Africa, some of them in Europe, right? Right, and we synthesized it and said to Reggie, this is our finding. The key finding was that healthcare needs more Edison's, not Einstein's. Yeah. <laughs> right? That was how we yes, captured yes, it. Yes, yes, The right? practical application right. of, so of the, uh, knowledge. That's yeah. right. They said, we have great bodies of knowledge, but what we want is that interdisciplinary aspect, yes. right? Uh, what happens at the intersections? And 
some of what is happening in healthcare now, they said data is exploding and right. people are collecting it like it's going out of fashion. Yeah. But how do you read insights from data? Yeah. And yeah. then what? You get these insights and then how do you make change? It's been described, Vasant, as, uh, and I don't know who said it first, but as uh, drowning in data and starving for information. Absolutely. Yeah. Very, yeah. very eloquently put. So that prompted us to say, as the study was nearing its conclusion and the convention happened and so forth, we said, we need to sort of build a platform ourselves. And one of the participants in the study was Dr. Charles Sorensen, who okay. was the CEO of Intermountain at that time. Yes, okay. So he came here to our office in New York and said, look, I am really interested in some of the things that you spoke about even during the, the interview. I'd like to sort of see after your study is done, why don't you come over to Intermountain, present some of these ideas, and maybe we can do something together. Right. Uh, yeah, that was from the CEO of Intermountain, which was very flattering. Dr. Steele at Geisinger made the same offer to me. Yeah. And he said, look, I love the way you're talking about some of the network influences and so forth. So maybe after this study is over, he said, if you brought a group of people who are very familiar with data, data modeling, I will give you access to several years of data at Geisinger. Right, right. right? And ideally, if they did not have any background at all in healthcare, it's probably better because <laughs> I want them to think in orthogonal ways, yeah, yeah. right? And, and then maybe they come up with something. So really he was talking about presaging some of this data science applications to, right. uh, but what happened was that at Intermountain, you know, it, everything came together somehow. And they said, let's try this whole idea of a single algorithm for tracking attention, shaping behaviors. Right. Yeah, which we got from, you know, that kind of synthetic so, thing. So, so let, me, <clears throat> let me stop you there for just a second, Vasant, and so that we can frame this for listeners. Listeners are probably familiar with a book called Nudge that came out, Richard Thaler. I think he was a Nobel laureate for his work in what's called behavioral economics, which is a bit of a misnomer in that there's so much that goes into it that's really about uh, behavioral science more than anything else. Uh, and Daniel Kahneman, of course, people may be familiar with thinking fast and slow. Uh, and so uh, those principles kind of informed your work to some extent, I'm guessing, based on, on what I've seen. But CareCentra is a platform that you put together to do what? To, to shape patient behaviors. That was our whole idea. The Kahneman story was particularly strong one because uh, I live in Princeton yeah. and in, in the early days of my coming here, Kahneman had got the first Nobel Prize in, in economics and he famously said at the acceptance speech that I have not taken a single course in economics and I you give me a Nobel. I'm, I'm really a behavior psychologist. Yeah, yeah. So, so let me just inject one more thing there because I think it will help. It helped me understand it. So prior to the work of, of, of Kahneman and Tversky, let's, you yes, know, let's not Tversky. forget Tversky. He, he didn't get the Nobel Prize because it's not awarded post uh, his death. Uh, they don't award it to anybody after death, but uh, certainly he would have had he been alive. The notion is this. It's, it's that historically economists talked about homo economists and uh, the notion that if you give people the right information, they'll be rational thinkers and they'll make decisions based on pure logic. Well, that turns out not to be so. 
And what Kahneman and Tversky and, and Thaler all did was they started to discover what are the shortcuts, the heuristics that people use to make decisions that are, are uh, for lack of a better term, fast thinking. Jonathan Haidt uh, divides it out into the rider and the elephant. And so what, what Kahneman really did is describe what drives the elephant. And the rider, our higher thinking, if you will, our logical thinking, contrary to what we imagine, spends most of his time explaining what the elephant just did. And that elephant is those intuitive decisions that we make, those shortcuts that through the process of evolution we have acquired uh, so that we can survive in the world, make decisions quickly that need to be made quickly, etc. But it turns out that that elephant, if you will, influences so many of our decisions that unless we understand that, then we make mistakes when we try to influence people. They're not typically going to use logic. We have to think about what it is that those heuristics represent and then play to those. Uh, in a sense, is that very, very, very well put, Robert? Yes, that is true. So it's it's in some sense studying irrationality. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. That's a great shorthand for yeah. it. Yeah, it's studying irrationality and then saying, yeah, the the well informed human being this is not still rational. Then what happens? Yeah, yeah. I, and and I think in in very practical terms, we still try it. Right, for when a patient is is recovering, let's say from a chronic condition that they are managing you tend to bombard them with a lot of information. Yes. The more informed patient is not necessarily the more adherent patient. That's not true. Right, right. So it's the same thing, right? In fact, the more you give them, it may cause them to throw up their hands and say, there's no way I can deal with all of this. That is right. Yeah. yeah. So so you, I was influenced by some of that. Uh, it was fascinating and yeah. as the whole world was getting into it in a big way. And then, uh, you know, the work that we were doing uh, at Script Logics and some of these access, it, it all came together. At that time, as I was thinking of how we make this into a product, a platform, what I was clear in my head about is behavior science was going to be dominant in how you built this platform. And secondarily, it was decision sciences and uh, you know AI and data right, science right, and right. data modeling and the quantitative aspect. And then the third leg of the three-legged stool was all of the personal technology, the IoT devices and sensors. Yes, right? yes. How do I bring this together and can we synthesize it in a way? So so line those up for us again, So the, the three things that you're bringing together here. It so. is behavior science and behavioral economics and behavioral psychology, social psychology, that whole field. Then the second is data science, decision sciences, AI, machine learning. Gotcha, uh, okay. The, the horsepower that's required. And the third is personal technologies, IoT devices, monitors, you know. Even, even the cell phone for, yes, you know, yes the, the right. smartphone, if you Signals will. that you can yeah, pick up. Yeah. So you pick up signals not only from data, you also pick up from devices. Yes. And how do you bring that together to sort of predict behavioral postures, to personalize behavioral postures, and then persuade behavioral postures. So gotcha. we call it a predict, personalize, and persuade kind of a, a rubric. Then when, uh, you know, re with Reggie's help, we did this amazing study. And then that led us to, to Intermountain, where we said, we can bring all of these principles. And it happened that they suggested in cardiovascular health, right. adherence to statins was a problem. You know, the drop off in statins was high. So can we use nudge theory to address this population? Can you do a hundred person year randomized clinical trial in the area. Yeah, yeah. We began building that. It was uh, 2015, at the end of 2015. 
I had met you, Robert, if, if I remember right, it was the end of 2013. Yes, right? yes. So and, and, and I, I got to tell you, from the moment I met you and, and listened to your ideas, I knew you were on to something. And, uh, Thank you. Uh, we, we provided uh, data, and, we, and uh, I met with leadership at Banner and tried mightily to, to uh, oust Intermountain as your favorite son. But I was not influential enough, obviously, to make that happen. But now we've circled back around and, and you're having discussions with Jeff Johnson and his crew at the Banner Innovation Group. I absolutely believe that not only have you brought together those three concepts in a way that is incredibly meaningful, but now you've proven it. You know, you've got data to back up the claim that, yes, I know how to do this. This thing works. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I, I still recall when I came and saw you, Robert, not only was all of the data that you gave me at that time, you know, helped us clarify our thinking. And I recall you're saying, gosh, how did Intermountain kind of pip us at the post? We ought to be doing this. Yeah. I remember that, uh, <laughs> you know, that you so graciously introduced me to so many people within Banner. And all of those data sets in, in the early days helped fashion our thinking. At that time, the idea of nudge theory, Taylor had not still won the Nobel. I was familiar with some of it. And so I said, how do I try this thing and eat my own dog food in some sense, right? <laughs> yeah. So my father, at that time, he was 90. He, were, he had congestive heart failure. Yeah, uh, yeah. And he also had, you know, early um, respiratory conditions. Yes, and yes. then also a, a kidney condition. But these things were only through diagnostic tests. Otherwise, it didn't present itself in, in any acute way. So in some sense, there were derangements happening yeah. underneath the surface, but did not present themselves. Gotcha. So from his point of view, he was doing just fine. He was 90, he was uh, doing his thing. So I, I said to him, Dad, given this, you would have edema that will begin to happen now. Right. So if you weighed yourself every day, and if your weight goes up by two pounds in a day or five pounds in a week, according to the American Heart Association, that's a trigger to get you into diuresis. Right. And this can be done preventatively. Uh, and so when I said that to him, he said, I am not going to do any of that because you're <laughs> going to take me to the hospital. I'm fine where I am. Yes. Yeah. You do that for your business or whatever, but leave me out of it. Right? <laughs> so one of my visits, I took a smart scale to him, Robert. You know, I had blocked out the, the numbers there and then put it by his bed and said, Dad, all you need to do is when you get off bed, just stand on it. That's it. That's all I ask you. And uh, he said, which part of no don't you understand? It's the same thing. You're, you're trying to get me to a hospital. Yeah. I said, then I had to think of what would nudge him. Yes. Right? And he was one of those who would play with devices, like not that he was a geek or anything, but any new device got his attention, yeah. the iPad or the iPhone and play around with it a little bit and that sort of thing. So I knew his weakness and I said, I'd use that for a nudge. So I, I told him when he came to the table for his morning coffee, I said, you know, I, I forced him to do that scale, stand on the scale thing. And then I opened our platform, which was at that time a prototype. Yeah, yeah. And I opened it on the, on the iPad and then showed him how his weight appeared in a graph, a visual dimension. Oh yes. So he said, how did this happen? I said to him, this is, you know, Bluetooth, that's the device and that's how it works. Uh, so he said, if I stood there several times, does this graph build? And I said, yes, dad, that's what it does. He started standing on it three times a day <laughs> because he was building this graph. He loved watching the graph. graph yeah. That was it. And sitting here in, in Princeton at 8.30 every evening, which was 6 a.m. in India, 
I would get a ping on my phone. Yeah. I knew that my 90-year-old dad was up, standing on the scales. If it exceeded the two-pound or the five-pound limit, it triggered off automatically uh, a message to my brother who was just a block away who took him for diuresis. It happened twice in the last seven years of his life. Wow. No ED visits. There was, you know, before that, there were some of those, nothing. He passed away just before this COVID mess began at 97. Yeah. But it was a clean, happy life. And yeah, we yeah. managed to extend that comfort. And I recall, you know, sort of presenting some of that story to you in, in Banner when you said, you know, where is this patient? I said, he's 10,000 miles away. <laughs> so he said, if you can do it there, why don't you do it here? And that's yeah, how yeah. we started talking. You know, Intermountain, when the trial began, you know, it was returning very positive data. What was happening, Robert, in this was, if you think of any non-communicable disease, as a derangement, right? It's a continuum of derangement. Right. It's a different, slightly different way of thinking about it. So if it sits on a derangement continuum and every once in a way that derangement happens and it presents itself mm -hmm. in an acute form and then yeah. goes back. So underneath is that derangement. How is that derangement influenced? It is influenced by lifestyle behaviors. Right. It is influenced by socioeconomic status. It is influenced by genetics and your physical environment. So we began thinking of is there a way you can capture all of this? Right. Because access to care and quality of care accounts for only 20% of the outcomes. Right? Correct, yeah. Uh, the other 80% is the elephant in the room, like you were yes, saying. Yes, right? yes, it's, yes, It's about, is there a way of building a single algorithm that goes across the entire spectrum and then keeps a sort of a finger on the pulse of not only rising clinical risk or changes in clinical risk, but also changes in behavioral phenotype? Right. Mm. So can we keep track of both of these so that when risk rises, I intervene with the right nudge based on the behavior phenotype. Gotcha. What is likely to get the best response from you in order to bend it back? It might be it might be something like, you know, adhere to medication or adhere to your care plan or maybe more physical exercise or maybe get to sleep earlier yes, or uh -huh. reduce the salt intake and sodium intake, right. whatever it is, right? These are all things that you can design as micro actions, but you need to nudge that action at a time when the patient is both motivated to do it and able to do it. And, and this is this is the uh, the genesis of what you've called Moby Maps. That's uh, right. Motivational behavior mapping. That's right. And and so you're able to track in an individual on an individual basis when that motivation plus ability is in the right place to allow a specific nudge tailored to that person to have an effect. Is exactly, that, yeah. it's precisely so. So then it was the question of how do I get the right nudge to the right person at the right time? Yes. Knowing that nudge works like trigger. I, I met BJ Fogg at Stanford. Oh yeah. Uh, I was fascinated by the simplicity of his framework. He said, look, motivation, he just simply threw it on the y-axis and then ability in the x-axis and said, you know, you can build an adherence threshold or a, an action threshold, as he called it. Yes, yes. So if you have the right combination of motivation and ability, then you can trigger action. In our thinking, the trigger was the nudge. So now what he did was give us a method of thinking about motivation and ability. We call it Moby mapping. So we said, how do I use, you know, AI and machine learning to keep a finger on that pulse of changing states of motivation and changing states of ability, right? So we began reading data through a behavioral lens. Can I understand, for example, something as nebulous as the trust in the health system or the trust in the physician from surrogate data? So I can read things like, how many appointments are you missing? Uh. Right? 
how many annual physicals are you are you keeping? How many times you change your physician, yeah. right? Even though you have the right kind of cover if you're changing physicians. And so that gives you some inkling as to where you might be on that. Or how many times do you sort of use computer systems to set up appointments, right? right, right. Do you use the portal at all? Yes, so that yes. gives me an idea as to how tech savvy you might or might not be. Yes. So these are all combinations of things that I can use either to assess motivation or accessibility. Yeah. And because this is constantly changing, right? It's dynamic. Currently, it allows us, given data science and some of the data science techniques, it allows us to constantly map your motivation and ability factors, right? So Mobi can evolve and I can keep track of it. And, and Vasant, not, not only is it d dynamic, but there's also uh, a dynamic uh, process going on with machine learning, right? So that the prompts and the mapping get better and better the more time you have with that individual. Is that, that accurate? Is, yes, that is accurate. So we said, if we have a Mobi map that triggers off a nudge, and that nudge might say, walk another 500 steps today. Mm. It's micro actions, right? Not, not ask you to drop and give me 50 push-ups but right. five. Right. And then the nudge was about using what channel and at what frequency and what timing works for you, Robert. Got and it. that combination might be very different for someone else. So pick the right content, get the frequency right, get the timing of the day right, understand the context. You know, is the, is the patient in a hospital? Is the patient at home? Is the patient in school? So when you nudge, you want to be context aware, Gotcha. You want to be content aware, you want to be channel aware, and you've got to be able to nudge them where they live. Yes. Right? Uh, you know, if you think of them as five categories, say there is content, there is timing and frequency, there is the, the channel that you use, there is the sort of incentive, non-financial incentives that you can use. It could be points, it could be gamified, right, leaderboards right. and so forth. Uh, we prefer non-financial incentives. So if you have these five different things, and if you had 10 variables in each of those, you can make over 2 million paths. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. And that's where AI comes in and says, you know, let me pick a path and pick one from each of these five categories and build a nudge pathway, as we call it now. Yes. So I try it. If it works, I upregulate it. Yeah. If it doesn't, I downregulate gotcha. it. So yeah. that's how the learning happens. We chose to go with reinforcement learning. Yeah. We initially tried prediction. One of the problems we found, Robert, was even the best of data sets, claims data, EHR data, you lay it all end to end and you find so many holes in it. Right? Yeah. And it's very difficult even for the best of health systems that we saw. Yeah. So if you went with supervised learning methods in, in machine learning, you could get from 80% confidence to 90%, maybe 95%. But that delta to push from say 70% from good enough to accurate, yes. the resource intensity on data was very high. Yes. So okay. then we said, all right, what's the other way of doing it? We went to the other end of the spectrum and said, let's use neural nets and deep learning. So, uh, you know, throw it all in and let the machine figure out patterns. And let's come with it. And that worked brilliantly. But when we began sitting in front of clinicians, they said, this is fantastic, but tell me how you got here. <laughs> right? And then the whole thing comes apart, right? Yeah, with yeah, neural yeah. nets, I cannot retrace. So explainability was an issue. Gotcha. Right. Okay. So they said, not good enough, go back to the drawing board. And that's when we came up with reinforcement learning because there, this whole idea of upregulating and downregulating can be done 
in partnership with the patient, right? Gotcha. So mm-hmm. I'm telling you, Robert, I'm trying this nudge. Is it working for you? Are you sort of doing what I'm asking you to do? I can observe based on, uh, you know, the devices that you use, you know, right. are you really walking or are you sleeping more, for example? Yeah, yeah. It's possible to assess that. And then when you assess it, you can titrate. Yes, the, okay. The and nudge. so you're interacting with the patient, the patient. Yes. on a regular basis. On a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. So we, for example, we might ask at the end of the week, looking back at the last week, did you miss any doses of medication, right? Gotcha. And yeah. you might say, no, I did not, then it's working. If you say yes, then the AI, Moby, we call it Moby, Moby asks you then, was it the morning dose or evening doses that you're missing? And the person, actually, this actually happened in, in the Encourage trial that was presented recently at the AHA. Uh, there, there was this patient, she was morbidly obese, mm-hmm. 50 years of age, her BMI was 56. Okay. Right. Okay. And she had several prescription drugs that she was taking, chronic back pain, apart from cardiovascular problems, chronic back pain and diabetes, as you might suspect. Yeah. And yeah. so she was in the uh, Encourage trial program. And so when the AI got to this point of, we did not use any complex technology for the patient, it was simply texting. Gotcha. Right? Okay. By texting the patient and saying, have you taken your meds? Um, and she says, no, not all of it. So what were you missing? It was the evening dose. And then the AI prompts the question, what's the last thing you do before you go to bed? Yeah, yeah. Right? And her response was, I grab a can of Coke. Unfortunately, <laughs> that was the unfortunate response. But any human being, let alone a clinician, would have said, stop that Coke. Yeah. But yeah. AI did not judge her, right? It said, it said, keep your prescription meds next to that Coke, wherever you keep Coke. <laughs> and we were able to track the improvement in, com- in compliance. You're moving her in the right direction without giving her a task that she's not ready to do. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's very well put. Yeah, yes. yeah. So it, I don't judge you because I'm AI. Yeah. I'm yeah, just yeah, telling yeah. you this will work. And we proved that it does. Now, overall, you might question, wouldn't you have been better off by stopping that Coke? That's a more difficult task. Yes. Right? Yes. This was an easier uh, yeah. achievement. But the AI got to that in just three leaps, three steps. Yes. Right? Yeah. This would have been unthinkable that, in a yeah, different context. Yeah, that would, not, uh, that would not have occurred to me. I, I would have wanted to change it to a water for <laughs> <laughs> And then she's never going to stop by that location, wherever that is. This, this is fascinating stuff. I, I, I know we've, we've gone on for a while here, but I have, uh, I have a couple of more questions. So you've talked about some studies that you did. Tell us, what are you finding? What, what have you published on this? What, what are the results that you're finding? The randomized clinical trials that we did were in two major areas. One was in cardiovascular health with uh, Intermountain, which was presented uh, the year before at the American Heart Association. Uh, what we showed was the statin adherence went up by anywhere from 12 to 16%. Mm-hmm. And even in people who were highly adherent to begin with, when you looked at the the intervention group versus the control group, by the end of the year, it was a 100-person year study, end of the year, the control group had dropped off quite a bit, yeah. but the uh, adherent group kept there. Right? So persistence mm-hmm. was very high, and the difference between the two was about 12-15%, okay. and very uh, low p-values. So clearly, it was Meaningful. this, this yeah. that was working. But also what was interesting was the dropout rates from that program was only 1.5% over the entire year. Wow. And the age, Robert, was 63 plus or minus eight. That is the 
So we're not talking about millennials here. Uh, We are not, (laughs) right? So what we did was by design, we said we will not even use an app, right? The algorithm is built in such a way that it can use text, it can use emails, it can use phone calls, it can use, it can sit inside even a device, right? So if you're using an inhaler, it can make it a smart inhaler by the algorithm sitting inside there. Interesting, okay. It's a sort of an Intel inside kind of approach, right? So it does not really matter what that last mile is. Gotcha. So you don't have to use my Mobi map as the app. You don't have to deliver some device to the patient in order for this to work. right? So we nudge you where you live. So texting was the dominant way of doing it, but still you need to be able to text the patient at the right time with the right message, right? Right. So we learned a lot of interesting things in that that trial where the the sort of retention rate was very high, the response rate was also very high, and some of the behavior economics principles of trying to sort of reinforce the patient by saying, hey, you're in the top 5% of people who are adherent, actually had the opposite effect. When you said that, there was a drop. We could actually see in real time how the next week and the week after decline in care plan adherence because they were told you're doing great. You're doing great, so they stopped trying. Yeah. <laughs> so, and we tried the same sort of approach with the algorithm in preventing preterm birth. Right, right. Again, right. Uh, that was the second uh, randomized trial at Intermountain. That again was fascinating because we went with the app, right? And uh, app was the primary delivery vehicle. Because it was a younger group, it was, right. you know, mm-hmm. median age was yeah. 28, mm-hmm. and they were all very tech savvy. The ability to track risk, right, using, you know, simple risk assessment tools that they could answer a few questions so you know whether the risk is rising, risk of preterm birth. Gotcha. So uh, I, these were patients who were thought to be at an elevated risk for preterm birth, and they were put on the Care Center platform. So it had the uh, option of, sort of nudging this patient every week to say, you know, take these few questions. And then you know whether the risk is rising or is it the same or is it fallen? And if it were, say, low risk, then the system says, you're doing fine. Mm -hmm. Go on doing what you're doing. If it were medium, it alerts the navigator at the back end, but comforts the patient to say, if, if it's required, the navigator calls. If it is high, then again, that navigator pings the patient back and because she sees a change in risk levels. That was one important thing. The other behavioral aspect that we learned there, Robert, was fascinating because the nudge would go once a week. So you take the symptom checker once a week. Right. But the other was to leave that symptom checker there on the app so you could take it anytime. Gotcha. And the number of times the mother was taking it or the expectant mother was taking it and the times in the day that she was taking it were far more indicative of hmm. the change in risk levels, right? She was self-selecting to say, something's wrong something's here. Something's wrong, let yeah. me send this in. Or, right. Yeah, interesting. In the, in the rest. Yeah, yeah. So we ended up, that whole study, we ended up with zero preterm births in the intervention group. And I still believe it was because we were able to keep track of that risk and bend that, or at least address the risk before it became an exacerbation. Gotcha. So that was the other study. And then we have been doing a, a long standing piece of work with another major um, Texas-based health system. And this was for uh, diabetes, hypertension, prehypertension, and pre-diabetics. What they did was they took the bottom 20% in adherence levels. Gotcha. Uh, generally, okay. they mm-hmm. had their own uh, quality scores, and they put them on the platform and said, let's see what you can do with it. It's the third year running, 
uh, all of them, uh, you know, the the results have been stunning. Uh, over 80% are fully adherent now. Wow. Right. And That's impressive. And again, it's a light touch, Robert. It's only text. We didn't even use the app. It's about getting the message at the right time and making it work for you, right? Rather than annoying you with so many messages. Yeah. yeah. The average nudging we do is about one, 1.2 nudges a week. Wow. And okay. Yeah. So on the other hand, oh, you might... And you guys were measuring uh, net promoter score. Too. That's right. Is that yes. right? Yes. And, and tell us about that. Where we... we have consistently had net promoter scores north of 80. Wow. And uh, we also measure something that we call weekly active users divided by monthly active users. It's a, it's a metric that Facebook uses. Ah. They use it to measure daily active users divided by monthly active users, tells them how sticky gotcha. is, is okay. it becoming a habit. So instead of daily, we use the weekly scores and we were about 55%, which is very, very high. Yeah. Typically you expect about 30%. Facebook's score is 50%. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, you're, this, you're in Facebook range uh, yeah, better well, than Facebook range. Which, which was surprising to us. And we think it's because you're not nagging. Hmm. So if the patient has the ability to do something, but is not motivated, and you keep on, that's going to be annoying. Yes. I know yeah, I can do yeah. it. I'm not going to do it. Right? Yeah, like yeah. the Coke example. Yeah. I'm not going to stop it. Yes. Right? Uh-huh. Not so, ready. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. But no, thanks. And then after the ser- second or third thanks, it becomes... Something a little bit more. Uh, yes, <laughs> they will opt out. Aggressive, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, they yeah. go. The other is if they are highly motivated but unable to do what you're asking them to do, right? Yeah. That becomes annoying, right? Either there are financial constraints or physically I'm, I'm wheelchair bound and you're asking me to run five miles. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That would be yeah. egregious. So if you avoid these two sides of, of the equation in a Moby map, then you become a lot more empathetic. And because that empathy translates in stickiness, yeah, yeah. That's, that's really how it. Th- it this kind of is works. such cool stuff, Asante. And, and we've been going on now for almost an hour and a half. It's amazing that that much time has flown by. Where I want to wrap it up is, I want to ask you, Asante, what's next? Where, where, where do you go from here? What are you trying to do uh, that is going to help us transform this beast that we call healthcare in the U.S.? I would not arrogate myself to sort of say, transform that way, Robert. But what I'm trying to do, what we are trying to do as a team is, can we use other data sets, non-clinical data sets, to get more behavior markers? For example, now we are addressing behavioral health and we find their sleep as a uh-huh. as an indicator. Uh, there was recently a study that I was reading where just one hour less in terms of sleep results amongst, this was a study that was done amongst uh, eighth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, and 12th grade students. Okay. And this was a large sample size, about 28,000 students. They showed that the risk of substance abuse in these children that got one hour lesser sleep than recommended went up by 23%. Wow. And the risk of increase in suicide attempts went up by 58%, right, in this population. This is a, a published study so if we could track sleep and preemptively, before it kind of manifests itself in derangement, if you are able to signal to people that are in that area. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, the one thing that, that comes to mind as you're saying that correlation and causation are not the same, right? So 
but it would be interesting to see if you can establish causation. There's plenty of reason to believe that that could be the case. But to, to give uh, listeners an example of what I'm talking about here, one could argue that it's because they do drugs that they don't get as much sleep, you know, it, that it's the other way around, for example. But, there, uh, you know, the data on the importance of sleep continue to accumulate uh, we know that folks that are not getting enough sleep are likely to be more impulsive. They're likely to be more anxious. They're likely to uh, fall off the wagon of whatever uh, project that they're on, whether it's related to health or business or anything else. So we know how important sleep is. And so I think you're onto something there. And, and I guess the next step would, number one, see if there are interventions that work to improve that. And then number two, see if those uh, risks go down when you do. That's right. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. some of the surrogate data is the correlation causality problem is a very interesting one, Robert. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, some time ago, we had built an algorithm that said, if you are under 40 years of age, if you are single, uh, if you make less than $100,000 a year, and a few other variables I'm forgetting, and if you drive an SUV, there is a 76% chance you're diabetic. That is so fascinating to right. me. I, I remember you uh, back in, uh, gosh, it was probably 2014 or 15, you telling me that story. And that is just absolutely fascinating. And and that's a situation where causation or not, it's a fact, you know, that 76% are yes, diabetic. Right. right. Uh, and that's an incredibly interesting. So I, I'm going to finish up here. I swear I am. But, but one more question. What do you need to get started with a care center program and Moby Maps for a population? of patients? What is required to make that happen? That's a great question, Robert, because initially we had said the more data you load up front, we'd be able to build a sharper Mobi map. So prediction was the emphasis. Right. Now we've gone to learning as the emphasis, right? So we will learn as we go. So we need literally no data up front. We just need your location data from which we pick up signals of social determinants of health right, right. because we have data at the zip code level. Right. So what this does is the Mobi map is built on the assumptions that you are like the others in the zip code. So right. it's generalizing mm -hmm. for just zip code. And then as you start interacting, it kind of narrows down. So we use the analogy of we start with a net and then we convert that to a dart. Yeah. So we are now able to do, you know, launch a program, mount a program with simply location data and gender. That's it. Wow. Wow. I, you know, uh, Vasant, this has been a great pleasure. I'm excited about what you're doing. The, the last question I have is how do people find you if they want to uh, want to learn more? Oh, it's uh, right now we are not, uh, you know, because we are working in, uh, so far it's been only a word of mouth kind of uh, oh, work. Yes, yes. Now we have carecentra.com is, okay. is the uh, first way to go, where it tells you uh, a little bit about the company. Yeah. But we are now actively mounting ways of, campaigning and yeah, yeah. getting it across I, I, to a it's large It's one group. of the things that I love so much about you is that you are, in some senses, uh, uh, an academic in that there's not a lot of uh, hoopla and promotion going on. You show up with data and uh, uh, there's no better way to convince physicians anyway of, of the veracity of your claims. So I think that's a smart strategy. I wish you the best of luck and I look forward to our next conversation. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you immensely, Robert. It's been such a pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye, everybody. You've been listening to The Groves Connection, your connection to the inside story on healthcare, featuring in-depth interviews with those who know. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. 
If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review to keep the connection going and hit the subscribe button to be sure you never miss a beat. The Groves Connection is produced by Dr. Robert Groves. Original music, editing, and creative direction provided by Alden Groves. Production support, content guidance, courtesy of Janae Sharp and Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you for listening. The professional ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and do not reflect those of any current or past employers. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Groves Connection.